You're listening to the On The Go with VAO News Podcast for June 2017. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for tuning in today. Coming to you from the Virtual Acquisition Office, or VAO, I'm Brittany Shapiro. Each month, the VAO team consolidates and summarizes the key takeaways from the most important acquisition-related policies, guidance, regulatory changes, and more. Dara Curran is hosting this VAO team review of top developments looking back at May of 2017. Take it away, Dara. Joining me today are my VAO teammates. We have Jennifer Chaddock on here. Some of you may know her personally because she goes out to your client sites. We have Scott Cox, the brains behind the From the Hill area and all of our legislative coverage, and Carol Barton, who is a subject matter expert and PhD. All right. Well, let's get started with what's been happening with the administration and on Capitol Hill. Thanks, Dara. We all began the month with a sigh of relief as Congress passed an omnibus appropriations bill for the rest of fiscal year 2017, uh, which President Trump signed on May 5th. The deal gives the Department of Defense a $2 billion increase in base discretionary funding compared to the fiscal 2016 budget, totaling more than $516 billion. The military also received $76.6 billion in overseas contingency funding. The deal was especially good news for the Army, The continued funding stream meant that the service did not have to halt such existing programs as developing the next generation engine for its Black Hawk utility and Apache attack helicopters, as well as undertake nearly 50 new starts, such as the future vertical lift helicopter. In fact, some 80 programs would have ground to a halt if the Army had had to continue at 2017 funding levels, according to Army acquisition official Major General Bob Marion. Highlights of the $519 billion in civilian spending include the Department of Health and Human Services receiving $3 billion in additional funding and a $681 million raise in the Department of Transportation's discretionary budget. On the other side of things, agencies that took a significant hit include the Department of Agriculture, whose budget was cut by $623 million, the Department of Justice, who saw a $143 million loss, and the Department of Education with a reduction of $1.2 billion. The legislation also includes over 60 acquisition provisions, including eight that are government-wide. Familiar government-wide provisions include prohibiting studying or holding a competitive sourcing initiative to convert federal work to contractor performance under OMB Circular A76, awarding contracts to tax-delinquent businesses and firms convicted of felonies, and requiring contractors to disclose their political contributions. It also limits the amount of agency consent to add a passenger vehicle to their fleet. The White House noted it aims to work closely with Congress to return to a regular schedule for the fiscal year 2018 appropriations process. Whether you breathed another sigh of relief when President Trump released the official details of his fiscal 2018 budget proposal on March 23rd, depends on what agency you work for and what kind of work you do. Things worked out well for DOD, gaining 10% in discretionary funds over fiscal 2017, which increased it to $607 billion. 
This gain was offset by a $54 billion cut in civilian agency spending to $560 billion. DOD received more than $208 billion for its acquisition budget, more than $83 billion of which goes to research and development and testing and evaluation. Innovative organizations did especially well, with the Strategic Capabilities Office receiving a $300 million raise over National Defense Authorization Act levels, and the Defense Innovation Unit, Experimental, receiving an additional $45 billion. Whether military or civilian, IT and cybersecurity also received raises under, president, under the President's budget proposal. The overall federal IT budget increased 1.7% to $95.6 billion, $1.6 billion more than in fiscal year 2017. On the cybersecurity side, the Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation, or CDM program, would receive over $200 billion, while the National Cybersecurity Protection System, known as Einstein, would receive almost $400 million. While civilian agency spending and staffing is down in the budget, the Departments of Homeland Security and Veterans Affairs buck that trend. Together with DOD, they are actually adding 25,000 jobs. However, a cumulative 26,000 positions will be lost at other agencies. The Environmental Protection Agency is hardest hit, losing nearly a quarter of its jobs. Treasury, Agriculture, and State would also see significant losses. The budget request is part of Trump's 10-year plan to cut $3.6 trillion in government spending to balance the budget. Besides agency cuts, the plan relies on large slashes to entitlement programs and federal employee retirement benefits. The Nonpartisan Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget believes the projected savings relies on a few potentially false assumptions, such as economic growth of 3% a year by the end of Trump's first term. However, the House Appropriations Committee has emphasized it is Congress and not the President who ultimately has the power of the purse, and while lawmakers will play, pay close attention to the President's suggestions, they will put forward their own funding plan, which will assuredly have some significant changes. The big non-budget news on the executive branch side was President Donald Trump's issuing a pair of IT-related executive orders. On May 1st, he issued an order to establish the American Technology Council, composed of senior administration and agency officials and presidential advisors, who will lead an effort to update federal IT systems and digital services delivery. Members include the President and Vice President, the Secretaries of Commerce, Defense, and Homeland Security, and the Directors of the Office of Management and Budget, National Intelligence, and the Office of Science Technology Policy. On May 11th, Trump followed with a long-awaited order on federal, federal cybersecurity. Among the order's key elements are entrusting the executive branch with managing cybersecurity risk, supporting the cybersecurity risk management efforts of owners and operators of the nation's critical infrastructure, and promoting an open, interoperable, reliable, and secure Internet. One major takeaway for acquisition is the push to incorporate more shared IT services into IT procurement strategies, including email, cloud, and cybersecurity services. Another aspect that touches on the acquisition arena is the requirement for annual reporting to the President on the cybersecurity risks facing the defense industrial base, including its supply chain and military platforms, systems, networks, and capabilities. This report will also provide mitigation recommendations. Getting back to legislation, the new and improved Modernizing Government Technology, or MGT Act, has passed the House. 
The previous version of the legislation died in the Senate at the end of 2016 after the Congressional Budget Office determined it would cost $9 billion over three years. Sponsor Representative Will Hurd went back to the drawing board and worked with the Government Accountability Office, White House, and CDO to come up with a better solution. The new version reduces the size of the central fund for agency IT and instead enhances the Working IT Capital Fund's Chief Financial Officers Act agencies can create themselves. This allows agencies to redirect savings from modernization investments in capital funds for up to three years instead of returning it to the Department of the Treasury. The new bill was scored at costing $500 million between 2018 and 2022 by CBO, a much more palatable figure for legislators. In addition, CBO said it should not impact direct spending revenues nor add to the budget deficit. The Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee will now consider the bill. Next, the House and Senate passed the Follow the Rules Act, which provides whistleblower protections to federal employees who refuse to violate government rules and regulations, including the Federal Acquisition Regulation. The legislation was sparked by a federal court case in which a federal employee was directed by his supervisor to require a contractor to rehire a fired subcontractor, but the employee declined because it violated a provision in the FAR. The court allowed the ensuing disciplinary action because its federal rules and regulations do not have the weight of law. Representative James Comer believes the Follow the Rules Act helps eliminate the impossible position federal employees are sometimes put in. It is expected that President Trump will sign this into law. Congress passed legislation that provides government employees the option to use Lyft and Uber on official business. The Modernizing Government Travel Act also directs GSA within 90 days to draft regulations authorizing reimbursement for car sharing and bike sharing services. While employees were already allowed to use ride-sharing services, bill sponsor Rep. Seth Moulton feels agencies and their employees may not have been aware of the option in the absence of regulations. And as we just published in today's news, President Trump has signed the DHS Stop Asset and Vehicle Excess, or SAVE, Act into law. SAVE centralizes fleet management at the Department of Homeland Security, instead of leaving it with the individual components. The Undersecretary for Management will monitor compliance with federal laws and regulations related to the use of government vehicles, develop a methodology to determine optimal fleet size, and approve vehicle leases and acquisitions. DHS components will be required to provide the Undersecretary with quarterly reports on vehicle use and annual fleet management plans. CBO estimates that implementing the bill will cost about $2 million in fiscal year 2018 to bring in additional staff uh, for the Undersecretary and to upgrade computer systems. Representative Brian Fitzpatrick has introduced the Small Business Payment for Performance Act, which allows contractors to submit a request for equitable adjustment also known as an REA, or a fee increase when an agency requests a change order. A change order refers to the changes in scope of work for an existing contract, as well as either or both the price to be paid or the time allotted to complete the new work. The bill's main provisions would allow contractors to charge the agency for change order work they complete while an REA is pending and require agencies receiving an REA to pay 50% of the billed amount immediately to offset additional costs. We should also take a look at these other bills and executive memos and order follow-ups that made the news during May. House Armed Services Committee Chairman Max Thornberry 
released his third installment of procurement reforms within the Defense Acquisition Streamlining and Transparency Act. Highlights include allowing DOD to purchase commercial off-the-shelf items through the same online marketplaces as businesses, allowing acquisition officials to choose between the Defense Contract Audit Agency or a qualified private auditor for incurred cost audits, and then linking the service, services contracting process to the annual budget submission. Thornberry hopes to get feedback from stakeholders and incorporate some of the new ideas into the House's fiscal 2018 defense policy. Another bill to watch is the Saving Federal Dollars Through Better Use of Government Purchase and Travel Cards Act, passed by the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. This bipartisan legislation directs OMB in consultation with GSA to develop a data analytics strategy to prevent improper payments in government purchase and travel charge card programs and identify opportunities for strategic sourcing. While the federal hiring freeze may be over, Deputy Secretary of Defense Robert Work still wants his agency to scrutinize all hiring decisions carefully. In a May 2 memo, he asks hiring officials to consider how position meets mission needs, whether the function could be performed at a lower pay grade, and how timely and efficiently changes to the position can be made. He also espouses use of term and temporary employees to fill any critical hiring or for short-term missions, and asks components to provide a detailed report of any hiring that took place during the freeze. In the wake of President Trump's Buy American executive order last month, many industry and former government officials have warned that additional restrictions on U.S. purchases could make it more difficult for acquisition officials to get the best product for the best price. The industry group, IT Alliance for Public Sector, or ITAPS, the U.S. should instead be prioritizing how to obtain the best technology to ensure national security. Former DOD CIO Terry Halverson points out that complex modern supply chains make it nearly impossible to buy products that are 100% domestically manufactured. He instead suggested that it would be more practical to focus on excluding certain countries from which we don't want to buy. Lots of conversation is going on in response to agencies' calls at President Trump's direction for streamlining and reorganizing government operations. As of early May, OMB reported receiving over 63,000 public comments regarding potential government reforms and performance improvements. OMB will be using data analytics to sort the suggestions into easier-to-review classifications by agency, by issue, and by how rapidly actionable they are. Be sure to get any last-minute ideas and suggestions in that you may have soon. The deadline is June 12th. The Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs issued a memorandum providing additional guidance for implementing the President's executive order on enforcing the administration's regulatory reform agenda. The memo includes requirements for 17 agencies to establish fiscal 2019 annual performance plans, targets, and timeframes related to the earlier executive order, directing agencies to repeal two existing regulations for every new one enacted. Agencies must also set targets for the corresponding performance goals for fiscal 2018. Likewise, agencies beyond the mandated 17 are encouraged to align their efforts with the memorandum's requirements. And finally, we have some workforce movings and shakings to report as the Trump administration continues to staff up open positions. On May 8th, the Senate confirmed Heather Wilson to become the next Secretary of the Air Force. Wilson is an Air Force Academy graduate and former officer 
and she served on the National Security Council staff under the first President Bush. Next, the Department of Veterans Affairs Secretary David Shulkin has named Air Force and Navy veteran Peter O'Rourke to lead VA's newly established Office of Accountability and Whistleblower Protection. O'Rourke will be in charge of the VA's efforts to reward and recruit high-performing employees, disciplining those who are falling short, collaborating with the components to resolve complaints and investigate and correct wrongdoing, and identify opportunities to streamline redundant and duplicative VA offices. And on May 23rd, President Trump selected George Nesterzuk as his pick for Director of the Office of Personnel Management. Nesterzuk's background includes serving as Senior Advisor to the OPM Director for the Department of Defense and Staff Director of the House Government Reform Committee Civil Service Panel. He will be the first confirmed agency leader since Catherine Archuleta's resignation in 2015. Now let's take a look at how the government has been innovating and transforming operations in May. Year after year, the government has been exceeding its total small business federal contracting goal. And now, fiscal year 2016 marks the fourth year in a row that the government has beaten its goal of awarding 23% of federal contract dollars to small businesses. In fiscal year 2016, the government as a whole awarded 24.34% of its dollars to small businesses, which translates to $99.96 billion, a more than $9 billion increase from last year. In breaking down the categories, the government also exceeded its small disadvantaged business goal of 5%, awarding over 9% of its dollars to qualifying small disadvantaged businesses. It also awarded service-disabled veteran-owned small businesses the highest amount of prime contract dollars ever achieved by the group at more than $16 billion. To top it off, prime contract dollars awarded in all categories increased since fiscal year 2015. For its small business prime contracting and subcontracting performance, the government earned an overall A grade on the fiscal 2016 small business procurement scorecard. Looking at individual grades, there were seven agencies which earned an A+, great job, 11 which earned an A, also great job, <laughs> four a B, and one a C. A preliminary analysis from industry experts suggests that if the administration truly wants to reform federal operations, then it needs to extend reforms to downsize acquisition requirements in the 18,000-page federal acquisition regulation and defense FAR supplement. The Aerospace Industries Association found that the uh, number of clauses related to commercial item procurement in the FAR, or DFARS, ha had increased from 16 to 142 since 2009. Of those, 109 apply to every government vendor and 76 source directly from either the White House or Federal Acquisition Council. The head of Aerospace Industries Association's Commercial Items Working Group said that the government customer comes with 141 additional regulations that aren't required when it sells outside to the public sector. For example, most commercial aerospace companies are not set up to comply with government cost accounting standards. It's not that they don't have standards, it's just not the exact process the government wants. So any large company wanting to do business with the government needs to go through a costly revamp to ensure they meet those specific standards for production items. The Coalition for Government Procurement cited President Trump's January 30, 30th executive order called reducing regulation and controlling regulatory costs as a good opportunity to comprehensively reassess federal acquisition regulations and federal buying procedures for sim similar cum cumbersome barriers, particularly in regard to commercial item contracting. 
and that includes GSA's multiple award schedules program. The group recommended GSA eliminate costly and unnecessary government unique terms, conditions, policies, procedures, and requirements. Back in January, former acquisition officials at the Procurement Roundtable urged that the President reassess and reduce acquisition regulations and policies, contending that the FAR is burdensome and intimidating to government contractors, particularly vendors who are new to working in the public sector. With a little help from another agency's supercomputer, Department of Veterans Affairs is planning to crunch its data to not just help its veteran clients with existing health issues, but predict and prevent them. VA has joined forces with the Department of Energy in the VA DOE Big Data Science Initiative, in which VA will borrow DOE's highly secure National Laboratory System supercomputers, plug in data from DOD, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and the Center for Disease Control, and use the resulting massive analytical capability to develop treatments and preventative strategies related to suicide prevention, cancer, and heart disease. Over at the Defense Department, a new dynamic automated cybersecurity scorecard is set to revamp how DOD does its cyber reporting. DOD's Chief Information Security Officer has made it a priority to automate the department's scorecard reporting. The current scorecard is static, and it relies on agencies' self-reported data but 2.0 will look at cybersecurity reports and treat them almost like a heat map for identifying threats. The new scorecard will measure the latest data in 11 areas of cybersecurity, including strong authentication, removing outdated software, implementing host-based security systems, and properly patching and configuring systems, which helps encourage comprehensive compliance across the chain of command. The government needs a better structure for its cloud procurement. According to the Chief of the Defense Information Systems Agency's Cloud Portfolio Office, John Hale. John Hale says the government, and DISA in particular, is still employing an approach that was established to buy set quantities of tangible things, such as bolts and pencils and paper. However, DISA's new consumption-based approach, which Hale calls the EasyPass model, will allow customer agencies to buy cloud services as they are rendered, pretty much the way you use the little tollway scanners that suction cup onto your windshield. Each drive through a cloud toll booth will debit the cost of that portion of the service used to a working capital account set up by DISA. The method will enable agencies to realize savings from the cloud much faster and emulates the already proven model of DOD's Defense Working Capital Fund. When agencies need to replenish funds, DISA will let them know. But if there is a zero balance, the agency's services will shut off to avoid any anti-deficiency violations resulting from inducing contractors to provide free services. The existing model requires that cloud services be provided through a contractor instead of directly through the cloud service provider. Currently, DISA is offering early stages of the EasyPath method through its MillCloud 1.0 services, which are on-premises, government-run clouds for DOD mission partners. This is upgrade to MillCloud 2, the contract for which they were awarded in June, will help to make this approach more efficient and more cost-effective. The Air Force is also using a different acquisition approach for replacing its Compass Call aircraft, allowing its lead systems integrator, or LSI contractor, to run the bidding process and choose the successor host aircraft. The Air Force wants the new vehicle to operate at a higher altitude with farther range and to do so more reliably than its predecessor. 
The acting Air Force Secretary asserts that the LSI approach is much more efficient, expedient, and cost-effective uh, way to, to rehost the Compass Calls Communications Disrupting Capability on a non-developmental, commercially-derived aircraft. However, other contracts that have used the LSI acquisition method, like the Coast Guard's deep water contract and the Army's future combat systems contract, have experienced cost and schedule overruns and performance issues. The Congressional Research Service cautioned in 2010 that such an approach could hamper the government's visibility over certain program aspects, but it also acknowledged that the LSI method could provide better technical innovation and overall system optimization. We'll be interested to monitor how this particular effort goes. The Department of Defense and an industry consortium have brokered a vital agreement to create common avionics standards. The initiative may be able to eventually reshape how the military designs, buys, and uses its aircraft, and is being hailed as the most important innovation in naval aviation since computers were first incorporated into airplanes. DOD and the consortium called the Open Group Future Airborne Capability Environment, or FACE for short, have signed a memorandum of understanding that aligns FACE's open avionics technical standard with DOD's Joint Tactical Networking Center software communications architecture. This will help establish consistent standards for systems architecture and software development, which will allow for easier system upgrades and mission-specific customization, and improve the cooperative capabilities of the involved organizations to increase system reuse. It will also promote software reuse and portability, meaning there's less need to reinvent the wheel, so to speak, when new software capabilities emerge. A software upgrade added to the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter's logistics system is helping to predict what-if scenarios to and improve the aircraft's operational readiness. The aircraft maintenance computer system is called ALICE, and the upgrade will help program personnel choose the best support equipment, spare parts, and personnel, and improve resource management throughout the aircraft lifecycle. Lockheed Martin says that the additional data should ultimately result in better overall aircraft availability. After flight testing, all operational F-35 sites will have the upgraded ALICE system, which is expected to be ready by the end of 2017. Software and radio has untapped potential. It could be used to intercept all forms of communication, like text messages, calls, images, and video. And future smart and intelligent versions can potentially gauge and adjust their own performance or identify interferences and automatically evade them. Most radios nowadays are actually software-based. There are no more gears and circuits in there, but instead they use computer microchips. And radios are in everything, mobile phones, televisions, even garage door openers. It's to start exploring this new frontier that the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, the DARPA, is holding a software-defined radio hack fest. The agency plans to host a series of national hackathon events where open source coders, scientists, and engineers will team up to hack digital radio software and explore areas for potential innovation. The big finale will occur at DARPA's Bay Area Hackfest in November, where chosen teams will be challenged to use software-defined radio tools to hack the controls of a drone mid-flight. To align with Digital Accountability and Transparency Act regulations, or the Data Act, the Treasury Department has launched a beta version of its USAspending.gov website. Co-created by Treasury and the ATF Group, the new site aims to provide standardized data on agency appropriations and expenditures 
using information that agencies submitted as part of the Data Act. The site will hopefully help further improve federal financial transparency. The beta site will be running alongside USAspending.gov for the next few months in order to ease users' uh, data access and allow time to make enhancements. Satellite procurements are a growing area of interest. For instance, we've recently written in the acquisition news about DARPA contracting for Phase 2 and 3 of its XS-1 phase plane, which is leveraging commercial capabilities to launch military satellites into space at low cost. So in a timely move, GSA is rolling out a new special item number, or SIN, for different Earth observation solutions. The new special item number 132-41 is GSA's IT Schedule 70 offering will be a one-stop shop for agencies to contract in areas such as satellite communications and imagery, distribution and content management, and data analysis and products. By using the special item number, GSA expects that agencies will be able to more quickly procure compliant, best-value Earth observation commercial solutions. Changes to agency operations are also achieving some significant cost savings. So let's go over how the government was helping to save money in May. First off, GAO says independent government cost estimates, or IGCEs, are a key tool between the program office and contracting officer to determine what a service contract should reasonably cost and what is required for it. As an extremely useful acquisition planning tool, GAO suggests that the government could use them more. In its review, GAO looked at six of the biggest spending agencies for services in fiscal year 2015. Though all six had guidance on IGCEs, explanations varied, were unclear, or undetailed on what documentation should actually be included in them. There was an IGCE performed for most of the contracts reviewed, but GAO cited that many of them were not as useful in acquisition planning as they could have been due to insufficient documentation, including missing document data, sources, and methodology. The government may also be missing key information about what happened in the procurement process. This information could contribute to, to future procurements as agencies. Be sure to check out the Virtual Acquisition Office website, where we have provided a recently updated quick reference guide and a new at-a-glance webinar, which provide detailed guidance on how, why, and when to prepare independent government cost estimates. A new study raises the question, can artificial intelligence, or AI, be the answer to government inefficiency? The AI augmented government study from Deloitte suggests that might be the case and that strategic workforce planning should widen its scope beyond the current focus on recruiting talented people and consider incorporating technologies. According to the study, by automating government processes, as with AI technologies, the government can reduce challenges such as understaffing, paper-intensive processes, and inadequate tracking capabilities. Deploying AI-based applications could improve many processes while helping to reduce backlogs, improve its accuracy of calculations, and tackle time-consuming or difficult tasks that human beings would have difficulty doing on their own, like predicting fraudulent transactions or sorting through millions of documents in real time. In turn, the study estimates that strategic AI deployment could save the government as much as $41 billion and over 1 billion man-hours, which could be put to better use on high-mission priorities. If your agency opts to explore its automation options, consider which one of these four main automation approaches would be the most beneficial for internal processes. Relieve workers from routine, menial tasks by allowing technology to take over, 
so people can focus on more valuable work, put up a job into component steps, automating some components and having humans either cover the remaining tasks or supervise the automated work, replace human labor completely, particularly for repetitive tasks that consist of uniform components, simple decision-making, and a limited number of potential outcomes, or augment the, and extend human capabilities, finding the right balance of what each labor source has to offer to achieve better and faster results. The Section 809 panel, charged with examining and making recommendations to overhaul DOD's acquisition processes, has issued its interim report to the House Armed Services Committee, and the group has flagged five main areas for attention. First, DOD's acquisition process must either speed up considerably or be flexible enough to respond to rapidly evolving threats and develop and deliver new capabilities addressing those threats. In other words, DOD must take the organizational shifts needed to adapt existing and future technologies faster than potential competitors. Second, DOD should leverage the dynamic defense marketplace and stop relying on the traditional defense industrial base alone. The panel cautions that in many cases, DOD needs the commercial market more than the commercial market needs DOD. So the department must adapt its acquisition processes to better fit with industry's own approaches. The department also needs to allocate resources more efficiently, improving how it budgets, sets requirements, and acquires everything, major weapon systems, services, and low dollar items too. The overall acquisition system needs to be simplified as well. Some defense acquisition regulations are outdated and others no longer apply, the panel noted, or their complexity in intimidates potential contractors from entering the market. The panel proposed DOD consider making federal acquisition regulation amendments that stress that the main goal of the acquisition process is to support the agency mission, and the secondary goal is to promote public policy objectives. Finally, the panel's report concludes that people are the most important factor in making defense acquisition effective and efficient. Right now, DOD's management structure and decision-making processes are struggling under layers of review and bureaucracy. Acquisition personnel should instead be empowered and enabled to make decisions, but also be held accountable for results. The panel says that its recommendations will help to form a new, flexible way of doing business that will be able to keep up with current and future needs. It will also incentivize innovation, creativity, and risk-taking that will shape a flexible acquisition workforce that can meet demands. The final report from the panel is due by September of next year. An industry report has determined that larger-sized federal service contracts are often recompetes and awarded to incumbents, even though the government is constantly clamoring for innovation. The report determined that out of 246 task orders and contracts worth at least $50 million that agencies awarded in fiscal year 2016, only 35 of those were for new requirements. 90% or $49 billion of that was spent on recompeting existing work. The recompetes also tend to go to incumbents, and 20% of major contract renewals only received one bid. At civilian agencies, incumbents have a 64% win rate, which drops to 52% if the solicitation receives two or more qualifying bids. For the military, the incumbent win rate is 61%. Likely, this is because government missions are moderately unchanging, and so are their corresponding requirements. New requirements in competition tend to be more prevalent in specific sectors like healthcare, business intelligence, and analytics and cybersecurity, of course. 
For instance, industry experts expect there to be twice the number of contracts seeking new requirements if the Modernizing Government Technology Act is passed. It's been proven that closing data centers leads to significant savings. $2.5 billion in savings has been realized thus far, according to GAO, but agencies can save even more with the simple small measures of reducing disk storage space. The Department of State, for example, has been replacing its old hard disk drive with smaller and denser solid-state drives, or SSDs. These solid-state drives don't require extra hardware to meet speed requirements. And solid-state drives not only take up less space, they also require less power and cooling, which results in massive energy savings. Right now, state stores 30% of its data on SSDs, but it plans to boost that to 50% by September to achieve more savings. DISA has also been switching to solid-state drives and has already moved about 80% of the information housed in its nine data centers to solid-state arrays. Other storage management technologies, such as deduplication, compression, and something called thin provisioning, can help remove redundancies and take up less storage space, too. Even the very old-school analog process of inventorying your data can help to, to detect old files that can be tossed out and unneeded files or databases that could be deleted. While the 24 agencies participating in OMB's uh, data center optimization initiative are making headway in their data center closure efforts, expected savings are coming in well below projections. And GEO set out to determine where the, dis the disconnect might be. Altogether, agencies have closed over 4,300 data centers and expect to shutter 6,000 more through 2019. 18 of those agencies reported $2.3 billion in cost savings and avoidances from fiscal year 2012 through August 2016. However, there are some discrepancies between agency savings projections and the DCOI reports required by the Federal Information Technology Acquisition Reform Act. 23 agencies collectively estimated that they would save $4 billion between fiscal year 2016 and 2018, but their FATARA DCOI plans only reported about $656 million saved over that same period. The reporting variance largely stemmed from eight of those agencies. Also, only seven of the 23 agencies who submitted a DCOI plan provided all the required information. That could unfortunately prevent them from reaching congressionally required data center consolidation and optimization achievements. GAO recommended that OMB provide greater oversight to ensure each agency completes its DCOI strategic plan in accordance with FATARA guidance, and that agency reports on achieved cost savings and avoidances are consistent with reporting mechanisms. All right, let's have a look at what's going on new in the frontier of protests and court news. As of early May, protests filed with GAO were holding up two very sizable procurement programs that we have discussed previously in this very same recap of monthly courtroom drama. First, there was GSA's Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions, the EIS, telecommunications contract. The $50 billion program was facing yet another pre-award protest after unsuccessful offeror Windstream asserted it had been unfairly excluded from the competitive range and therefore eliminated from further award consideration. GSA has been trying really hard to keep a brisk timeline with this behemoth contract uh, because its award process is really only the very beginning of a long and arduous multi-year transition process uh, as other client agencies then need to begin to lay down and implement their transition plans to move over. 
GSA had potentially hoped to make awards announcements in June, so right this month, but GAO had from this protest filing until the end of July to even render its decision. But then, right at the very end of May, Windstream formally dropped its protest, allowing GSA to continue with its selection process. Now, similarly embattled program was the Department of Homeland Security's Flexible Agile Support for the Homeland, or FLASH for short, Procurement for Agile Services. DHS had already made the awards under this $1.5 billion program once in November. They fielded multiple protests, went back to the drawing board to make corrections, and announced new awards in March. That trimmed another two firms from the originally selected pool of 13, so yielding a total of 11 new awardees. And like tulips in the springtime, a new crop of protests resulted, 12 of them this time, and decisions were due roughly by late June from GAO. However, like our last court story, there's a surprise twist here, but of a very different nature. DHS, at the very end of May, decided it was boom, canceling the whole shooting match. DHS's Procurement Innovation Lab was running the solicitation, and they haven't yet released an official statement on the scuttled program, but we do know from some legal statements covered in the trade press early this week, there were some internal missteps that prompted the agency's decision. We are going to cover the good and bad aspects of that procurement program, which was groundbreaking in a number of positive ways, in the next month's update, so be sure to tune in for that. We have just one detailed protest decision to review with you this month. It was related to a request for proposals for court security officer services. GAO partly sustained and partly denied the challenges filed against the U.S. Marshal Service award decision. For simplicity's sake today, we're going to focus on what GAO found to be valid in arguments. Uh, U.S. MSRFP had stated that offerers would be evaluated on three factors, technical merits, past performance information, and price. But the first two combined would count significantly more than just price. Performance information would be gleaned from sources that could include the past performance information retrieval system, the federal awardee performance and integrity information system, and information that may have come from program offices, contracting officers, or end users. Critically, the RFP also noted offerers will be given an opportunity to address adverse past performance information to which the offerer has not previously had an opportunity to respond. For unsuccessful offerer Walden Security, most of the performance references it provided had no adverse issues, but contract files the agency obtained contained some fairly vague and kind of blandly concerning comments, uh, such as some difficulty in scaling up service or in some areas of program administration. USMS still gave Walden a rating uh, in past performance of very good, but Walden contended that both the reporting agency's critical comments were unreasonable, as well as the marshal's failure to allow it to respond to the performance comments, as was stated in the RFP. USMS said the comments weren't really that adverse. After all, Walden still received a rating of very good. However, if you have attended these prior updates with us, you know what happens when GEO determines an agency didn't follow what was stated in its RFP, right? The buzzer sounds, GEO says, no, kids, you've got to follow your own rules. Or if you prefer the exact technical language that GEO stated, there is a reasonable possibility that Walden suffered competitive prejudice as a result of the agency's failure to give it the opportunity to respond. So your takeaway here, it's one we've repeated many times before, you do need to follow the terms of your final solicitation to the letter. 
In this case, USMS should have allowed Walden to have its say in explaining the negative comments from the program files, and also, I think probably more clarity just on what those comments even meant in the first place would have been great. They uh, sounded pretty vague. Interestingly, this actually fits very nicely with the first item for our next section. And that is what new agency policy developments we saw during May. DOD components could do a better job of completing performance assessment reports, or PARs, in the Contractor Performance Assessment Reporting System, CPARs. DOD's Office of the Inspector General noted this in a May review. The Office of Defense Procurement and Acquisition Policy Director, accordingly, issued a memorandum directing agencies to improve how they are preparing and curating that data. The May 16th memorandum specifically charges components with, one, reviewing their reporting policies and procedures, and two, examining how they can better ensure quality control over submitted information. The memo also proposed that officials in charge of monitoring CPARs quality periodically review the CPARs quality and narrative writing training to refresh their knowledge of the requirements. If you want to do a better job with your performance reporting, such as ensuring the comments you write that may be used in future evaluations are clear and well-backed up by empirical observations, as might have been helpful to the U.S. Marshal Services um, in this month's protest decision, you can check out our May 2017 at a glance. Uh, this publication addresses the CPAR system overall, what role the information plays for the acquisition team, and how to write a clear and convincing evidence-based narrative that will prove useful to your acquisition colleagues during their source selection process. Next, it's still in draft form, but the National Institute of Standards and Technology has updated its guide to best cybersecurity practices to reflect President Trump's executive order requiring agencies to use NIST cybersecurity framework. The guidance itself states it will be of particular use to personnel in charge of enterprise and cybersecurity risk management at their organizations. The agency is welcoming comments on the draft through the end of June. DPEP has announced the six procurement management reviews that the Defense Contract Management Agency will conduct in fiscal 2018 and their corresponding dates. Those up for review this coming fiscal year include DARPA and the Missile Defense Agency. As always, DPAP is inviting defense components and other defense agencies to send volunteers to assist with the program management reviews. This is a great way to cross-pollinate procurement ideals. Groups with 40 or more individuals are asked to propose two volunteers and the under 40 set to identify one volunteer each. If you are GS 13 through 15, or have a comparable military or civilian rank, this could be a highly educational opportunity. You can let your director know if you are interested in participating and can even request a specific agency you'd want to assist with, though this is just an indication of preference, not a guarantee. Nominees need to be proposed by September 1st. Last, we saw an updated chapter released for DOE's Acquisition Guide. This chapter pertained to the patent and data rights has undergone some administrative changes and has been redesignated 70.2701. Regulatory changes in May continued to be both brief and few. On May 3rd, DOD announced it was proposing to change two aspects of the rules of practices and procedure of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. One change pertains to the rules under which senior judges essentially fill in for each other uh, during cases where there is a bench vacancy or in the case of another judge being disabled or recusing himself, 
the change we are most interested in is clarifying the circumstances under which the court will agree to conduct a review after receiving a supplement to petition for grant of review. Specifically, DOD is proposing to modify the working of Rule 21A from saying appellants must show good cause in the supplement to appellants should show good cause. The change removes potential confusion with Rule 21, and comments had to be submitted by June 2nd. On May 17th, the Office of Management and Budget gave non-federal entities a deadline extension, allowing them to take until December 25th, 2017, to incorporate new procurement standards outlined in revised grants management guidance that OMB published in December 2013. The changes would then take effect for fiscal years on or after that new deadline of December 26, 2017. Also on May 17th, VA announced it was tackling the first phase of its proposed plan to revise the VA acquisition regulation to align with the federal acquisition regulation. VA acquisition regulation parts 803, 814, and 822 will be examined first, as well as parts that would be affected by those changes. Comments on this effort are due by July 17th. And last, in a very smart approach that combines outreach with outsourcing, DOE and GSA have asked for public weigh-in on just which portions of their regulations they should consider streamlining or eliminating, as directed under Executive Order 13771, which is reducing regulation and controlling regulatory costs, and under Order 13777, enforcing the regulatory reform agenda. DOE is asking interested parties to identify regulations, paperwork requirements, or other regulatory obligations that could be nixed or scaled down to reduce burden. Comments are due to DOE by July 14th. GSA has invited similar comments on a wide range of areas, including agency-issued acquisition policies and practices, federal property management regulations and leasing regulations, and travel regulations. Comments on GSA's proposed rules are due July 31st. And that is it for our look back at May. Thank you again very much for joining us today. Yes, well said. Thanks so much, Dara. Thanks to all our subscribers for tuning in. You can read more about any of the covered headlines on our news page at www.gotovao.com. To our iTunes subscribers, thanks for tuning in. If you have any questions on how to gain access as a subscriber to the Virtual Acquisition Office, please email vaocustomercare at gotovao.com. Join us again next time for our monthly recap of key acquisition developments. Thank you again for joining us today. Goodbye.